scriptures this morning. The first is from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. It's attested by the law and the prophets. But the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. Our second scripture is from uh, the book of Isaiah, from last week's book. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 5. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses, and he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him as stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion and crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we ask for you to be with Jeff today as he preaches to us. We ask that you fill him with your spirit, that you let it flow out freely upon us and that it find rest and uh, fertile soil in our own hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. How are we today? Uh, today's message, I have to tell you, I very rarely can say this, but I have to tell you what I'm going to communicate with you today is just the most important thing I can tell you. It's the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. It's central to all that we believe and all that we teach and all that we do and become as Christians. That's how important what we're going to talk about today is. And those two scriptures that we just read are critical. They're vital for us to understand what it is that Christ has done for us and why that's so important. Today we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, our atoning sacrifice. We're going to talk about Jesus who is the atoning sacrifice for, for us all. And so uh, we're going to look at that doctrine, and the first thing we're going to look at is the necessity, the necessity of the atonement. So if you have your bulletin, you can follow along. I've got an outline in there that will help you track with me. Uh, so up until this point, uh, Paul has built a really compelling case. Thank you very much. Uh, Paul has built a really compelling case against any personal display of righteousness. I think that's pretty clear. Don't you think that's pretty clear? Romans 3, 9, he says it again. We have already made the case, 118 through 3, 8. We have already made the case that both Jew and Gentile alike are held under the dominion and the power of sin. There is no one who is righteous not even one. I don't know how he could say that clearer. So, so he has built a compelling case, made a compelling case against any personal display of righteousness. We bring nothing to the table. Paul has also told us clearly what the human dilemma is and that God has now apart from self-justifying acts. What are the self-justifying acts that he's covered? Do you remember what they were? 
sin, sin. So people who sin are self-justifying. They're saying, my sin is justified. I can do this, right? I don't have to live under God's authority. I live under my own authority. So that's the first self-justifying act. The second self-justifying act that he mentioned in Romans 2 is moralism. The moralist on his high horse who looks down at those who are in flagrant, profligate sin and says, well, I'm just better. That's also a self-justifying act. The third self-justifying act that he's covered in chapter 3 is actually religious works. He turns his attention to his, his countrymen, his Jewish countrymen, and he says, actually, your religious works aren't going to cut it either. So he has told us what the human dilemma is, that God, now apart from any self-justifying works, sin, moralism, or religious works, has now revealed his righteousness in Christ. And we learned that God's righteousness in chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, is one, the quality or the characteristic of being in the right. It is the quality or the characteristic of having right standing. We also learn that it's by faith. Righteousness is apart from the works of the law. It's not by any works. And we learned that that righteousness that is in Christ is also anticipated and prophesied in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And last week, Pastor Daniel, if you missed that message, please, please do go back and watch it. Pastor Daniel took us back to the law and the prophets. He took us back to Isaiah 53, which prophesied the coming of a righteous branch who would inaugurate God's kingdom and accede to his throne, but in a matter, as Daniel pointed out, that is quite unexpected. He pointed out that instead of arriving with the pomp and fanfare that accompanied ancient tyrants, this this victorious king comes lowly. His coming is unremarkable and unexceptional. And furthermore, this king is rejected and despised and disfigured such that he is unrecognizable. Instead of crushing his enemies with the iron fist of his mighty power, he is crushed. He's lanced. He's pierced. He's wounded. He's bruised. And he's beaten. And Daniel reminded us that the prophet himself predicted that hardly anyone, really, actually, no one could believe this. Who could believe that this is the way that God's righteous king and God's righteous world-writing salvation would come to the world like that? Who could believe our message? And we we also learned that it was actually God's will. Never let anyone say to you that God allowed Jesus to be crucified. It was God's will to crush him. The New Testament says that this happened according to God's predestination, his foreknowledge, his definite foreknowledge, and his predestined plan that Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb who was rejected and despised and be put to death for our sins. And then Pastor Daniel reminded us that the story doesn't end there. Hallelujah. The story ends, it looks like, for all the world, that's it. The suffering servant goes in the grave. He is assigned a grave with the wicked, but then suddenly he sees the light of life, and then he inherits the spoils of his victory. How does a dead man do that? Because he's resurrected. This is the end of the story. Sin requires God's justice, and the just demands have been met. 
Isaiah 53.10, so the Lord makes his life, Jesus' life, death and resurrection, an offering for sin. An offering for sin. It's right there in the Old Testament prophetic text, as clear, I think, as it could be. So God's righteousness was attested by the law and the prophets. So what necessitated the atonement is that God is holy and he is righteous and he is a perfectly just judge. And the sin that we have committed, that we have fallen into, must be satisfied. It must, the payment must be paid. Number two, let's talk about the nature of the atonement. This is my favorite message of the whole year, by the way. For those of you who know me, you know that I'm so excited about this. Now, I'm going to teach you some theological terms that if you don't know these terms, I mean, just, yeah, get your pen out, write some stuff down, uh, because I'm super, super excited. The nature of the atonement, we're going to talk about what it is. Romans 3.25, God presented Christ. According to the NIV text, says, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, there's a reason why this, this word in the Greek here is translated variously, depending on what version you're reading. So let me put a few translations up on the screen. If we have those, we'll start with the NET or the, the New English Translation or the CSB which is the one we normally use here on a Sunday morning, but I'm not using it primarily today because uh, it's not right. But, uh, <laughs> but it says, God publicly displayed him at, uh, at his death as the mercy seat. Now, the Greek word there is the word hilasterion, uh, accessible through faith or by faith or through faith. So the NET and the CSB agree it should be translated the mercy seat. I'll explain that in a second. The ESV, the KJV, ASV, and the NASB would translate that term with a different word, and that's the word propitiation, right? So whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's that same word, by his blood. Now, the NIV and the NRSV, I think, correctly translate this because they translate the concept. They translate it into what is going on at the mercy seat. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. There's that word again, through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So let's look at that word really quickly. The Greek word is hilasterion, and it means mercy seat or sacrifice of atonement. It can mean either one of those. So you see why the translator opted for one or the other. Why is that? Um, so the reason why some translation translations opt for the word propitiation. I want to define that word for you. That's not a word. When is the last time you used that word in, in just conversation, right? See, I really was a propitiation to my boss today. No, you don't, you don't use this word often. This is an older word. But to propitiate means to appease or assuage a judge's wrath for wrongdoing. That's what it means. It means to appease or to assuage, to placate, a judge from carrying out a sentence upon a criminal. That's what it means, okay? Uh, it also, in a Christian sense, it means to meet or satisfy the demands of God's justice, his just condemnation for sin. It means to meet or to satisfy God's demands, God's just demand or condemnation for sin. So this is what Christ does for us. Now the term in your translations, depending on which one you brought today, is translated either in concrete literal terms, denotatively, 
or it's translated in figurative conceptual terms connotatively, right? So what's the difference between a denotation and a connotation? I'm going to explain that in just a second. So the mercy seat, just so you know, how many of you have seen the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? There are people who have not seen that movie. Okay, you need to watch that movie. Okay, so in, the, in that movie, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, they find, in the movie, uh, they, uh, Indiana Jones finds the Ark of the Covenant of the Old Testament. And what it is, and I think they do a very good job of this, the prop looks really good. Probably pretty much like the original Ark looked. And so um, <clears throat> what it is, is it's a ritual box. The word Ark just means ritual box. It means the same thing in the story of Noah, by the way. So it's a ritual box in which sacred things are kept. That's what it is. Now, the top of that box, it has a lid. And on the lid, the lid is made of gold. And the lid or the cover of that box has a couple of cherubim angels, their wings facing into each other. Now, they symbolize protecting sacred space. That's what that symbol is there for. But this lid, this cover, is referred to in Hebrew by the word kaporet, or the Greek word hilasterion. So that's how, that's what this word means. So it's called, it's translated the mercy seat, but it doesn't look like a chair. So why is it called the mercy seat? Well, because this is a metaphorical seat of authority. This is the seat of authority. This is the place from which God rules his realm. It's the place where he manifests his presence in a cloud of glory to give uh, Moses instructions on how to lead the people. This is the place where the high priest meets with God to purify the sins of the nation. So it's called a seat because it's a seat of authority. It's the place, it's God's sacred space. It's where God manifests his presence to communicate with us, to cleanse us, and to rule his realm. In Star Trek terms, the Holy of Holies is the bridge. <laughs> and the mercy seat is Captain Kirk's chair. And nobody sits in Captain Kirk's chair. And only authorized personnel may come and go. Only two people are approved to enter the sanctum. Uh, that's the high priest and Moses, and only the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Moses can't go in on the Day of Atonement. So among other things, the, this ritual box, this Ark of the Covenant that is in the innermost sanctum of their tabernacle, their temple, among other things, it's the place where God's glory appears, according to Leviticus 16.2, where Moses speaks with God face to face, Exodus 25, 39, and 40. But on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on this special day, annually in their calendar, it's the place where atonement is made. And I want to read to you how it's done. This is how it goes, all the way back to Leviticus 16. Verses 14 and 15, it says, He, the high priest, shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the cover. Now, that word cover, that lid there is the caporet, or the Greek version here is the word hilasterion. And before the cover, hilasterion, he shall sprinkle the blood with his finger. He shall flick it seven times. He shall slaughter the goat of the purification offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the curtain and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it upon the cover, that is the hilasterion, and before the cover. Thus he shall make atonement. Now this word is the word 
hilastetai. Uh, this is the verb, verbal form of the word. In fact, it's the word ex hilastetai. And we're going to get into what this word means in a second. So he is to uh, make atonement for the sanctuary because of the uncleanness of the Israelites and because of their transgressions, all of their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which remains with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So obviously we're talking here, whatever you think about it, obviously we're talking about some kind of purification ritual. We're talking about a purification ritual that God has instituted in Leviticus 16 in order to, to symbolically make the people clean and the priest clean and the tabernacle clean, and that's the reset button. That just hits reset so that they can conduct business with God in his sacred space for another year. So the term helasterion can have either both a denotative meaning or a connotative meaning. What do we mean by this? Well, think of the word Watergate. Now, some of you who are too young, you've heard this term, but you don't know what it refers to. Now, denotatively, literally, the, it can refer to the concrete building itself. So the building is, is the Watergate Complex um, <clears throat> in the Foggy Bottom District of Washington, D.C., and it's just a building. That's all it is. But if you're in common conversation and you say Watergate to somebody, they're going to, uh, they're going to fill in the blanks of Richard Nixon and what he did, uh, giving the orders to break in and steal private campaign documents from the DNC headquarters. So it can refer to the literal physical object, or it can refer to the literal physical object and the event that took place there that you're, as the reader, are supposed to fill in the blanks, right? Or the word or phrase 9-11. Now the phrase 9-11 just is a calendar date every year on your calendar. But if we're talking and I bring up 9-11, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about 9-11 in the year 2000, that infamous day in which terrorists flew planes into our buildings, right? The Pentagon, the Twin Towers, you fill in the rest of the idea there. So understand that some translations are rendering hilasterion as the physical object, the mercy seat, the cover, the lid itself, assuming that you, the reader, know Leviticus 16 that you know what took place there. While other translations render it propitiation or the place where atonement is made, where that sacrifice, the blood of that sacrifice is applied and atonements are made. So the physical object is meant to evoke a mental picture of the whole rite, the whole sacrificial rite. So what does the symbol mean though? Well, the author of Hebrews in chapter nine tells us, chapter nine, verses seven through 10, but only the high priest entered the room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people had committed in ignorance. So here we see that the purpose of this offering is for what? Sins. Sins committed. And the Holy Spirit was showing that by this, uh, that the way into the most holy place, into God's inner sanctum, had not yet, been, not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. Now, this is an analogy. This is an illustration. What is an illustration? The earthly tabernacle. The earthly, earthly tabernacle and everything in it is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. That is, the animal sacrifices didn't have an internal conscience-clearing effect. 
What effect did they have? They were only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying unto the day of the new order, to the time of the new order. So, the Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated annually and ceremonially, and they were only temporary, and they had an external effect alone. They didn't clear the conscience of sin. Let's read on, verse 24 through 26. It says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He had entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence, meaning everything related to the earthly temple and the earthly tabernacle was merely symbolic and typological. It was a symbolic representation of a heavenly sanctuary where atonement actually had to be made by Christ presenting himself before the Father. Verse 25, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with, his, with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once and for all, finally, at the culmination of the ages to do, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we see the contrast between the emblem and the reality between the type and its fulfillment. The earthly tabernacle was a symbolic representation of the heavenly one. As such, animal sacrifices were inadequate and temporary while Jesus' sacrifice was fully sufficient and permanent. I'll say that again. Because the earthly tabernacle was symbolic and only had an external effect, animal sacrifices were inadequate and temporary while Jesus' sacrifice was fully sufficient and permanent. And so the external rites and ceremonies were signs. Now, they were signposts pointing to the future when God would cleanse the conscience, which is the New Testament way of saying cleanse the heart, cleanse the spirit, cleanse your soul from sin. And so the high priest who didn't offer his own blood is replaced now by Jesus, who is the high priest of his own sacrifice, who goes into God's presence and presents himself as the acceptable, fully sufficient sacrifice. And he offers himself voluntarily and willingly on our behalf as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So I think we can define the atonement very simply. The doctrine of the atonement is that Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins in order to reconcile us to God. All of this is to purify us and then reconcile us in relationship to God, and he does that through his death on a cross. Very simply, the atonement means that Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be reconciled in relationship to God. That's what, but how does he do it? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the means of the atonement, because I think the Bible speaks to this pretty clearly as well. And when it comes to the means of the atonement, we're talking about what's the instrumentality? What is the means by which God has made this atonement, forgiven our sins, made us righteous before Him? And then what is the means by which He gets the benefits of the atonement to us? So we need to understand that there are two ways we're talking about means here. The first way is expiation. Expiation. Like propitiation, this is just not a word we use a lot. You don't commonly use this in conversation, but what it means is to remove the impediment or the offense. It's the removal of the impediment, the thing that is causing offense, and in this case, it's our sin. If you look back 
at the offerings for unintentional sin in Leviticus 4, 35, sums it up. After he gives them all the protocols for making these offerings for unintentional sins, this is what he says. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for the sin they have committed, and they will be forgiven. So we see that atonement is for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins. What it does is it removes, or symbolically in that case, it removes the impediment to relationship. The thing that is making us unclean and causing the offense. Again, Leviticus 16.30 this is because this is back to the day, the day of the atonement now. This is because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. That before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. So the idea of expiation here is to cleanse you. The idea of an expiatory sacrifice is to remove the thing, the impurity that's making you an offense to your God. So the first means is expiation. Now, the New Testament authors interpreted Christ's sacrifice as the removal of our guilt, of our liability to sin, which separates us from God. 1 John 2, 2. Let's read this. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus Christ now is the atoning sacrifice who removes, expiates our sins. So the consistent witness of the New Testament is that Jesus is God's sacrificial lamb who is offered for the removal of our guilt. The first means of the atonement is an expiatory sacrifice, the shedding of blood, blood the blood of an acceptable sacrifice. The second means of atonement is faith. Faith. Now, we defined faith a few weeks ago as trusting reception of a free gift. Faith is the trusting reception of something offered freely. Grace is the free gift of God's salvation, which is delivered to the empty hands of faith. Grace is the free gift of God's salvation, which is now delivered to the open and empty hands of faith. Again, Romans 3.25 tells us God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. It is through faith that this sacrifice, or the benefits of it, now applies to the sinner. Faith is critical. Look what Paul says here. Romans 4, 4 through 5, he says, Now to the one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. If you work, your employer owes you a paycheck, Right? That's your wages, verse 5, but to the one who without works trusts. So you see here that Paul breaks these two things apart. We don't come to God with our religious works of service to appease him. We trust that God justifies the ungodly. Such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So the instrument or the delivery system through which Christ's expiatory sacrifice comes to us is by the means or through the instrumentality of faith, trust. God delivers it to the one who receives, the one who trusts, not the one who works. And the third means of our atonement is this, justification. Justification is vital, critical. Now, justification is the judicial act of declaring one acquitted of all charges. Now, this is very interesting. Daniel brought this up last week. We're going to talk about this. How can God declare a person who is actually guilty, guiltless? How is that possible? 
So it's the judicial act of declaring one acquitted of all charges. Romans 3, 25 through 26. Let's keep reading. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance and his patience, look what he did. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So God had actually not punished the human race and just killed them all for their sins. And they didn't just all drop dead and he didn't wipe the slate clean. In other words, God in his patience let us live to today. And so God in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just in the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so the basis of God's verdict, understand, is not that we have won our court case. I want to say, the basis of God declaring you acquitted of all charges is not that you stand before God and based on your merit or the case that you have made that you have now won your court case. Nope. The basis of our acquittal is pardon. Pardon is critical. Understand that the Old Testament and the Second Temple Jewish literature never uses the word pardon the way we do today in our modern vernacular. <clears throat> Think about the President of the United States. Think about what a scandal every single term. Go, I mean, I just remember going all the way back to Scooter Libby. For those of you who are old enough to remember that. Like, just think about the President pardoning someone who's been loyal to him and then just pardoning that person even though they've been found guilty in a court of their peers. Think about that. Okay, that's, somehow, that's sometimes how we use it. The Old Testament never uses it of God like this. The sin demands a verdict. The sin demands justice. And God doesn't just acquit us. God doesn't just pardon us because he likes us. God doesn't just pardon us because he thinks you're really neat. And he'd rather you not spend eternity dead and in hell. No. God pardons us because the demands of his divine justice have been satisfied, and he loves us. And the basis of our being pardoned for sin is, is not that we have made a good case in front of our peers. Understand that God is all three branches of his government. He is. He's, he's the executive, judicial, and legislative branch of his government. God makes the laws. He judges the people as the legislative branch. Uh, he makes the laws. As the judicial branch, he judges the people who break the laws. And as the executive branch, he can decide who is punished, and he can decide who is acquitted, who is pardoned, who receives a pardon for their sins, for their crimes. And so understand that our sin is an assault to his justice. It is assault to his holy and righteous nature. And so how does he do that? I want to put this uh, up on the screen here. I, I might not have it up on the screen, but uh, I'm going to tell you, and you can write it down really quickly. Our justification is due to a gracious, loving act of judicial pardon. Our justification is due to a gracious and loving act of judicial pardon, and the basis of our pardon is that God's just demands for the sins we have committed has been met. The payment was punishment, and the payment has been made. Praise God. As Pastor Daniel asked the question last week, but how is that just? <laughs> the guilty deserve what they're getting, right? Amen. 
<laughs> Does the innocent man on the cross deserve your punishment? Does he deserve our due, our just deserts? So how is it possible now that God justifies the ungodly? How is it possible that God condemns the innocent in our place? It's the doctrine of imputation. It's the doctrine of imputation. You need to know that there is probably no doctrine in the, in the Christian faith right now that is more out of fashion than the doctrine of imputation. In theological circles, scholars are, and philosophers just dismiss it with a word or a sentence or a paragraph in their writings. Past, this has trickled down now, as Daniel mentioned last week, into the sort of consciousness of pastors because of the idea of your sins being imputed now to someone else and their righteousness imputed to you is just abhorrent. But I do think this is what the Scripture teaches. This is how God does it. So, imputation is the reckoning or crediting of our sin to Christ, God's innocent, righteous servant. And it's the legal imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. It's the legal imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Now, understand what Adam's legacy is. Do you know what Adam's legacy is? Romans chapter 5 tells us. It tells us what Adam's legacy is. It's not imputation. Adam doesn't impute his guilt to you. You're not guilty for Adam's sins. You, you're guilty for your sins. I'm guilty for my sins. It's infusion. Infusion is not imputation. Adam's legacy to you and I is the infusion of a sinful nature that leads inevitably and inescapably to a life that sins against a holy God, and that life receives its just condemnation for those sins. So you need to understand that Adam didn't impute his guilt to you. He infused his nature to you when you were born into him. You and I have a sinful nature, and death comes because we sin and act on that nature. By contrast now, Christ doesn't infuse his righteousness to you. Like you don't just pray a prayer or commit your life to Jesus or read Romans chapter 10 and make the good confession, and then you don't, you don't just be completely expunged of all your unrighteousness, are you? In some ways, you still have the same habits and the same hang-ups you did a minute before. You got saved a minute before the Holy Spirit came to dwell in your life and in your heart. So Christ doesn't infuse his righteousness to us. Christ imputes the legal status or the standing of being right before God. And our sins are not infused to him on the cross. He doesn't become you. They're imputed to him. He has the legal standing of a condemned sinner on the cross, and that's the exchange. Look at how Paul says it in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, that's pretty clear. So it comes through Adam. He's the federal head. He's the fountain spring from which all this comes from. And so death spread to all because Adam sinned. Is that what it says? No, it says death spread to all because all have sinned. Why have we fallen short of the glorious righteousness of God? For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So what you and I received from him was a nature that is bent with every sinew and every particle to rebelling against God and living under our own righteousness and authority. But what Christ has done is impute his righteousness to us 
I want to put up a few passages. I think that demonstrate this. I think they do. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. I want to show you how. Paul says this, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ. Notice that the righteousness is alien. It's foreign to me. It's not mine. It comes from without. It's extrinsically given to me. But whose righteousness is it? If, it does, if it's not of me and it's not in me and it doesn't come out of me, then where does it come from? Whose is it? 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is from him that you are in Christ. So where are you? You're in Christ. Who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Who is our righteousness? Christ. Whose obedience does God see when he looks at the sinner who is in Christ by faith, who is now the saint, Christ's? In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. How are we the righteousness of God? We are in Christ, who is the righteousness of God. So this righteousness is a change of our legal status and standing before a holy God, not an infusion of automatic righteousness in us. We don't just wake up and have no sinful impulses or passions or motivations or desires. Nope, it's imputation. And this righteousness is more than mere removal or expiation of our guilt. It's more than just the expunging of your record or your guilt. The righteousness which God imputes to the believer is not merely the removal of the stain. It's giving to us a standing of rightness in His presence. We are purified and cleansed from sin. So in the past, God left sins unpunished until the present. And he justly condemns sin in Christ, who has met the legal demands of his justice for wrongdoing. He forgives the sinner who by faith receives, due to no works of his own, Christ's work for taking the punishment that would have been ours if God had punished us. And now the guilty receive a divine pardon, declaring us acquitted of all charges, having received Christ, who is our righteousness, sanctification, and resurrection hope. Amen? Hallelujah. What great news. Like I told you, there just is nothing better I could have told you today. I have no better news than this. And so what's our response? What's our response to this great gift of righteousness in Christ? Well, I think firstly and foremostly, conviction and confession over sin's severity. What do we learn about sin? Well, we've been talking till we're blue in the face about it, right, for the last 12 weeks what do we learn about sin? Sin is not just making a mistake. It's not just zigging when you should have zagged. Sin is not just, well, I'm just broken. <laughs> no, you're more than broken. You're a rebel in God's realm. You rage and you roar and you rail against a holy, righteous God, and so do I. And so we learn that sin is severe. Sin is an offense to a holy and righteous God, and so this should now bring the Holy Spirit's conviction. And it's not worldly sorrow. God doesn't give us worldly sorrow. What's worldly sorrow? It's condemnation. But the Scripture says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and His righteousness, right? 
We're no longer condemned. And so this sorrow that we feel over sin points us to the cross where we find our salvation. And I think if you're here today and you're an unbeliever and you have not believed, today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't walk out the door without trusting, putting your trust in Christ and his free gift of salvation. And if you're a believer, it's perfectly appropriate for you to live in the light of the cross. It's perfectly appropriate for you, to, you and I to get up every day and drag our sinful impulses and behaviors and habits scratching and hollering into the light of God's cross. Living a life under the conviction of his sin. What's the second response that we need? Appreciation. Thanksgiving. For all that God has done. That God would do this? <laughs> I mean, that he would... Judge sin by sending his one and only son to die for sin and condemn sin on the cross in our place, and that he would give us Christ's righteousness? Could there be a better message? Could there be a better gift that God could give you? No, he saves us, and I think that should inspire a life of tearful gratitude, of just teary-eyed thanksgiving constantly saying, God, I sinned against my wife. I sinned against my kids. God, today I sinned against my own body. Thank you for burying those sins in that tomb, for nailing them to the cross for me. It should inspire a life of continuous teary-eyed gratitude. And then I think also assurance in the all-sufficiency of Christ's work. How many Christians have I met over the last 30 years being in pastoral ministry? How many Christians have I met who are just worried? They're worried that, that this sinful habit in their life is, is going to cause them to be condemned on the day of judgment. And I think you and I can have a blessed assurance, can't we? Knowing that the cross of Christ is fully sufficient for our sins. Fully sufficient. All sufficient. And that because I bring nothing, I bring open and empty hands, and I bring nothing to the table to bargain with or to impress God with, I can be assured that Christ's sacrifice does impress God and has done it. And lastly, motivation to change. Notice that Paul says that he is our righteousness, our right standing before God, our just declaration that we stand in the right. He is our righteousness sanctification, and resurrection. Paul says that Christ purchased for you not only your justified status, legal change of status, God purchased for us our sanctification. And so because of all that he's done, this motivates me as a believer to want to be surrendered to his will, to want to be conformed to the image and likeness of his son and to walk after Jesus and Jesus' teaching, and to obey Jesus' teaching. Amen? Are you glad your sins have been atoned for today? Are you glad for a systematic theological lecture today? I don't know what that laughter means, but <laughs> I'm hoping it's approval. Let's pray. We're going to bring the team back up here. Father in heaven, God, that worship service was just so moving, so powerful. You are. You are the God who justifies the sinner.
because of the rich, the rich atonement that you have bought for us on the cross. And God, we could be free and live under holy, blessed conviction. And we can live assured, secure, knowing what you have done for us. And God, we can live motivated to follow after the teachings of your Son so that we may look like Jesus in all we say and do. And so this morning, God, we just breathe a prayer to say thank you. We all just say thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for so great a salvation. And if you're here this morning and you just, you don't know this salvation. Listen, you don't need a, you know, you don't need a preacher. You don't need a Catholic priest. You don't need anyone to tell you that you've been carrying around a weight of guilt that you cannot carry. I don't have to tell you that. You already know it. Will you understand that Jesus offers you the greatest exchange you will ever get? The greatest offer you will ever experience? He exchanged your unrighteousness for his righteousness. Will you just take it? Will you just receive it and receive it with the trusting hands of faith right now? Just receive it and confess it. God in heaven, we believe that Jesus died for our sins to reconcile us with you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen.